Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, rich friends, poor us, is status anxiety the newest form of depression? We bring together three of L.A.'s wittiest and most insightful social observers, filmmaker Nicole Holofcener, author-performer Sandra Singh Lowe, and L.A. Times columnist Megan Dom for a frank and provocative discussion about social class in Los Angeles. Presented in conjunction with the Los Angeles Times editorial pages, this Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series event was recorded live at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy. We begin with our moderator for tonight's discussion, Megan Dong. Welcome to Zocalo. I'm Megan Daum. When I was asked to put together an event for Zocalo, I was given one of those terrifyingly long leashes in that they said, well, just hold a discussion about whatever you want with whomever you want. (laughs) And uh, after mulling over the various possibilities, I realized I didn't know anything about North Korea and (laughs) global warming was too much of a downer. So I I thought I would get right to the heart of things and talk about a topic that I think so many of us are consumed with, but we rarely talk about or even realize we're consumed with. And it's really the last taboo. And that topic is class. Um, As a journalist and even as a novelist, I've noticed that when you introduce subjects of class, um, people tend to get very uncomfortable or even angry. So I hope that you're prepared to to feel very angry and uncomfortable (laughs) tonight. Um, I can't see, you know, I can't see them, but I I see the fangs emerging (laughs) in the the light. Um, So I thought these two artists, Nicole Holofcener and Sandra Singlow, would be really perfect to have this discussion with because they both in their own ways deal with issues of class and status anxiety in their work. And I'm just thrilled that they agreed to meet with me on the stage and take this on. So let me introduce them. Nicole Holofcener is an acclaimed filmmaker. I'm a huge fan, as are many people here, I'm sure. She's truly an auteur. She's written and directed three films, 1996's Walking and Talking, which starred Katherine Keener and Anne Heche, Lovely and Amazing in 2001, which again starred Katherine Keener, as well as Emily Mortimer, Brenda Blethyn, Dermot Mulroney, and many others, and most recently, Friends with Money, a film whose title obviously inspired the title of this event. So thank you, Nicole. And thanks for not suing me. That film, if you haven't seen it, um, stars Jennifer Aniston as a woman whose financial status pales in comparison with that of her wealthier friends. It also stars Frances McDormand, Joan Cusack, and of course, Catherine Keener. Nicole's also directed episodes of Sex in the City, Six Feet Under, and The Gilmore Girls, as well as other television projects, and she's just really so smart and compassionate and witty, and I'm thrilled that you're here tonight, Nicole. So Sandra Singlow is probably no stranger to you if you listen to public radio, which I can't really see you, but I put my money that you spend at least 16 hours a day listening to public radio. She's the author of Depth Takes a Holiday, Essays from Lesser Los Angeles, If You Lived Here, You'd Be Home By Now, a novel, and A Year in Van Nuys. And aliens in America. Oh, Just aliens, a little paperback. I'm sorry. Just okay. Paperback. I thought that was a, a... throwaway. I thought it was throwaway. a... Throwaway. Yeah. Okay. Good one. Um, <laughs> you know, she does a lot of shows. Bad Sex with Bud Kemp, Aliens in America, Mother on Fire, Sugar Plum Fairy, and 
I worry. Yes. I worry. She won a Pushcart Prize in 1997 for her short story, My Father's Chinese Wives. And in addition to doing regular commentaries on KPCC and Marketplace and showing up a lot on This American Life, she's also a contributor to the Atlantic Monthly magazine, where she often writes, um, at least as I read them, articles about issues having to do with class and its various discontents. So, Sandra, thanks so much for, for being here. Thank you. Um, I I have to start by sort of dating myself a little bit. There's this little book that came out in 1983 by the historian Paul Fussell, and I don't know if people here remember this. I find it fascinating and brilliant. It's called Class, A Guide Through the American Status System. And it's sort of a half-humor, half-sociopolitical treatise about the various ways that Americans express their class status. And so I just thought I would get our ideas flowing by reading just a couple paragraphs from the first chapter of Class. The book is obviously over 20 years old, but I think this is timeless stuff and it's no accident that the first chapter of this book is called a touchy subject so this is paul fussell although most americans sense that they live within an extremely complicated system of social class and suspect that much of what is thought and done here is prompted by considerations of status the subject has remained murky and always touchy You can outrage people today simply by mentioning social class, very much the way a century ago you could silence a party by advertly too openly mentioning sex. When recently asked what I was writing, I have answered a book about social class in America. People tend first to straighten their ties and sneak a glance at their cuffs to see how far fraying has advanced there. Then, a few minutes later, they silently get up and walk away. It is not just that I am feared as a class spy. It is if I had said, I am working on a book urging the beating to death of baby whales, using the dead bodies of baby seals. (laughs) He goes on a little bit later to say, You reveal a great deal about your social class by the amount of annoyance or fury you feel when the subject is brought up. A tendency to get very anxious suggests that you are middle class and nervous about slipping down a rung or two. On the other hand, upper class people love the topic to come up. (laughs) The more attention paid to the matter, the better off they seem to be. If you reveal your class by your outrage at the very topic, you reveal it also by the way you define the thing that's outraging you. At the bottom, people tend to believe that class is defined by the amount of money you have. In the middle, people grant that money has something to do with it, but think education and the kind of work you do almost equally important. Nearer to the top, people perceive that taste, values, ideas, style, and behavior are indispensable criteria of class, regardless of money or occupation or education. Okay, so bearing in mind, those are Fussell's words, not mine. Um, I was wondering if either of you might chime in on that a little bit, and and maybe even if you dare. I know you're a smart interviewer supposed to ask the really tough questions last, but what class are you in, Sandra? I'm the last middle-class person in Los Angeles. Anyone else out there? You see in the middle? This is from The Gap, clearance, six bucks. Also, this was anything over $20 hurts me. Um, And just when you were talking, I was thinking, class in Los Angeles. Of course, there's the whole movie class. And I'm going to say, some of you may be angry, so let's just kick it open right now. Um, Who's the classiest person in L.A.? Probably Gore Vidal. (laughs) 
and that's kind of a mixed thing because I remember reading this LA Times piece and there is Gore Vidal. He's come from his villa in Ravenna with a gay lover that they don't sleep together anymore, which seems very classy. Uh, you know, just say they iron the linen and the bow ties. He's, of course, come back to Los Angeles um, as a kind of an amusing sunset years thing to do, which I think is very confident of your class that you end up in Los Angeles. Like, he doesn't have to be anywhere fancy. He's in L.A. because he's so above it. He will not get affected. And he's sitting in his mansion in this interview with the books behind him. And, of course, he hates Bush, which is very classy. Uh, you know, Nation Magazine Cruise is very classy. They just throwing a pen dinner, West dinner, which it was $250 a plate, very classy, and they honored him and HBO, very classy. And he was sitting and tinkling, I think it was straight gin in his crystal with just ice, very classy. <laughs> that is the classy drink. And then he was going off about, you know, what's wrong with America today. And of course, America's gone to in a handbasket. And the reason you can see this was because the best picture had just gone to crash, not to Brokeback Mountain. Okay? And that was because the Academy is very parochial because you have those voters. And he said literally something like, the grips, the gaffers, the thises, and the vats who live in Van Nuys. The 91405, as I like to call it. So to me, this was a litany of the very high caste status of Gore Vidal, who has all the perfect class emblems with Van Nuys at the bottom, which is why I put myself in the Van Nuys, the middle class. And you, Nicole. Oh, thanks. (laughs) That's not a tough act to follow. (laughs) What she said. Thanks for not answering my question at all, by the way. You said what class I am. Well, sorry. No, no, it's just, no. That, that fourth We're going to get to That fourth book, that's still not going to be. Um, but I think what I'm going to choose to believe that we're all getting at is I want to look at the way money may or may not really be a reflection of class anymore. I mean, Nicole, like for you, you have a great sensitivity in your films to the way people's houses look and the way they dress and the way their cars are. And is that like when you are writing a script and talking to the set designer and in costumes and all that, are you aware of actually how much money your characters make or is it really more of like a sensibility in terms of their class i would say both i'm for friends with money it was very important for me to figure out what they made and i did talk to the actors and all the creative people on the film about well they make this much and this house costs this much and they want to have a house that costs that much and so that was very important for that movie but in that movie, as well as my others, it's I didn't really think about it. I just want it to look real to the people who are doing it. Like when I'm shooting in, say, in New York, and I wanted the actors to have small, crummy apartments, which was all we could afford, they were too small to shoot in. Otherwise, you'd have one angle. So whenever you see just one angle, that's because it's realistic. If you have anything bigger and it looks bigger, then you get slammed for, that character could never afford that apartment in New York, and I feel guilty because I am guilty because I wanted more space to shoot in. So it's trying to find that balance because that is so annoying when you know somebody can't afford something and they have it in a movie, you know, like the cast of Friends living in that apartment. I mean, that was... (laughs) Right? I mean, that just infuriates people. But it's like they needed a place to shoot in, and it had to look good and last for years. So I don't think they were trying to be bad. But um, when I was listening to what you were saying, I was thinking, I don't know what class I am. It's so interesting that that's not something I grew up with at all. I guess I would know if I was middle class, right? 
I mean, I, I don't know what I'm confessing. It's, it's, you, it's sort of like if you're mentally ill. Like, if you know that <laughs> you're, then you're okay. Then Although you're maybe the, the creative <laughs> class is its own class. It right. It's a Silicon Valley, the creative class. And we had been emailing back and forth about if you go to an L.A. party and what people say they do. And my sister who comes from Northern California, she's always, if she says, I'm a biologist, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm a plumber, people will just turn away from you. Even if you're an unemployed jewelry designer, that will be a lot more interesting yeah. if you do something aspirational and creative right. but if you just say that you do a normal job people don't speak to you so it might be this kind of creative class right uh, and my thing. parents were creative yes. <laughs> so they were forgiving you know it's like I didn't have to have a specific idea about a job or what I wanted to be when I grew up and we didn't have money and then we had money and I got educated but you know not really I mean I, I have <laughs> I went to private school but I didn't learn anything and I went I got a master's degree, but in filmmaking. I mean, that's like just board games. You know, it, like it's not, it's like not a real education. So I don't particularly feel like I'm highly educated, even though it costs, you know, $80,000. So I don't know what I am. It's Well, actually, in Fussell's book, he calls me. that class the X class. He divides the sort of classes into different categories. He's very sort of obsessed with the proles, he calls them, the proletariats, who wear visors. Apparently, <laughs> visors are... And they um, have lawn elves on the front yard. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. The, you know, there's all these sorts of obvious trappings. But, I mean, there is something about the sort of way of growing up or living your life where you're pursuing artistic avenues and you have this kind of bohemian lifestyle. So you have the trappings of an upper-middle-class existence without the money. And, I mean, and that's something that I've written about a lot and I'd be curious to hear like how you sort of imagined your creative adult lives I mean for me I grew up in a suburb and I would watch Woody Allen movies and think like oh I want to live there I want to live on Central Park West and they can't be rich this is you know they have paint chip the paint's chipping off the windowsill and these aren't the rich people I know in my suburban town who live in a Tudor mansion on the west side of town and then lo and behold I grew up and I moved to New York and I realized that people with the chipping paint were wildly wealthier than anybody in the entire state of New Jersey. Um, so, and so it was really, um, in my entire 20s was kind of a, a process of disenchantment sort of socioeconomically until I just gave up and moved to Nebraska. But, you know, that's, we're not going to get into that. You're listening to Megan Dom, Nicole Hull of Center, and Sandra Singh Lowe in a talk recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo. On Tuesday, September 19th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents Will Mexico Survive Its Presidential Election? A talk by noted Mexican political scientist and columnist Denise Dresser. Dresser will discuss presidential candidate Andres Manuel López Obrador's challenge to the outcome of Mexico's recent election and the credibility gap that President-elect Felipe Calderón will inevitably face. This event at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve seats and to download past radio programs. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Rich Friends, Poor Us, Is Status Anxiety, the Newest Form of Depression, with Megan Dom, Nicole Holof Center, and Sandra Singh Lowe. I'm just curious, Sandra, like, I assume you always sort of knew you wanted to be an artist or creative, and 
Or at some well, point, I, and now, how I think, does it square with your fantasy? I, I mean, I think that when you grow up as a creative person, of course, you always imagine my thing is Ashland, Oregon, kind of an A-frame cabin and a skylight and, you know, only people who write poems and bake bread and make little jams in baskets and we all live together and do yoga and do the batik dying. But I think what you're saying about the creative class is really interesting because, of course, in L.A., you know, to be creative and poor is alarming to people. I mean, I remember one time I was having a conversation, and we'll get into education at some point, which is, I think, another fascinating topic, where a guy who was a lawyer was telling me that his son was 11, and he was, of course, in a Waldorf school, 20,000 years, but that he was really great at trumpet playing. He had a great embouchure, and the music teacher kept saying, I've never seen a kid with such an embouchure. And he love to practice trumpet hours. What's and an embouchure? Really, it's like your lips. Embouchure. That's the way a middle class person would say a French word. Embouchure. Um, and, you know, and he loved to see his son passionately practicing for hours and hours. He's never seen a kid with such musical talent, at which point, of course, just having read the Gore Vidal article, I said, well, that's great. Your son could grow up to be a musician and live out where the musicians live, in Van Nuys. My husband's a musician. And he blanched, and he said, there are plenty of surgeons who play the trumpet. And so I think that is what art has to be. Like, the creative, like the Van Gogh and the Garrett is not, you know, we want our children to be creative, but we don't want them to be actually poor. There's one other little thing I want to throw up before we go to Nicole. This is a good order where I remember there was in the L.A. Times real estate section. All of us read the Times, don't they? Where there was this great home section thing. Do you remember about Brian Grazer and his wife? In their small, and I have nothing against them. I don't know them personally. Small so four thousand. They're small, fourteen thousand square foot home on a mountain. You know, but they're both creative people. So I remember reading that they all have little notepads next to the phone in case Brian gets an idea, he can jot it down. And I go, well, that's what we think of creative in Los Angeles is zillionaire. So you know, Mike Ovitz can be creative. Like it's these top people are creative, and now even DJs can be creative, even if they never played an instrument. If a snippet of their remix is used in a Mercedes commercial and they make zillions of dollars. They're so creative. So the idea of, I would like to bring back the idea of poor creative people. We need yeah. more poor more, suffering. More creative people. That's angry. what it used to mean. Yeah. And, and angry yeah. too. Angry and unwashed. Well, actually I think... <laughs> Nicole, you and I have both lived in New York and Los Angeles, and I do think that there's a sort of style difference just in terms of the way class is perceived. I mean, it may be a new money versus old money thing, but I think that's maybe a little bit reductive. I mean, when you were living in New York, did you have sort of different aspirations, maybe aesthetically or in terms of your house or, you know, how you dressed or whatever it was than you do here? Well, I was younger there, so I was happier with less stuff, you know? I was lucky in that I got somewhat successful at an age-appropriate time. It's like you can't be a certain age. And and what age is that? Between 30 and 35, it looked like I was going to start to become, you know, not an embarrassment to anybody. (laughs) And when I made my first film, I was 35. After that, things started to go up. And so I felt that I didn't have to be 40 and not be able to afford the restaurant that all my friends could afford. Although I do have a diverse group of friends, and I can't afford it, but I don't know. We all talk about it, and I don't have fancy friends, even if they're rich. You know, we still eat at normal places. And in New York, I was broke, but because of my family money, I was able to get a good apartment. So I, was, I didn't have any money to spend, but I was in a pretty good apartment with roommates who were paying more than me for the apartment. <laughs> 
but I was in my twenties and it was okay to be broke. And I didn't really care about buying furniture then. And then I came to be in my forties and now I'm more materialistic and I read Dwell magazine. And so it's like, you know, had you been mostly in LA in your thirties? Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, no, no. In New York in my thirties, I can't remember. I mean, because there is now that I'm in my sixties, I can't remember anything. (laughs) Um, I was, I don't know when I had kids and then everything changes with kids too about money. Cause all my money, I just want it all to go to them. I want them to be able to eat and have things. What do you make of this idea of fancy friends versus rich friends? I like that idea. I mean, they're rich, but they're not fancy. Right. Cause but- I can't have fancy friends cause I'm not fancy. Like if I had fancy friends, we would run out of a relationship. It would end. But do you have fancy friends? Wow. When I think of a and fancy listening friend, right now. Like, and I would love to go fancy on a yacht. Sometimes if anyone to. has a yacht, I was like going, I should really be on a yacht and eating little really good sushi. And that's not in my life. And I wish it were. So, Gore, but don't. So you need uh, friends with money. Yeah, I need friends with money. But not so, necessarily fancy friends. But I friends. find that I'm thinking of someone who hopefully has his visor on and is not listening to public radio. And I think sometimes in L.A. you'll have these friends who may take you the poor bohemian friend as like a colorful friend to have to invite to their party. Like... It's a McMansion in a canyon. And I remember I went to one. I won't say his name, but it was a very music industry thing. I'm not really a super brown-looking person, but I realized in the first two hours there were not just only white people, but white people with a certain iridescent glow, that bluish glow of only being a sound studio. And the help was like 20 Latino people serving food under a big Mexican theme. And then I was sitting there with my blonde children because my husband's Norwegian, and everyone sort of thought I was their nanny. So it was like a really, uh, you know, asking me to watch their kids and, like, talking about tennis, and they couldn't recognize my voice from public. So it was a really bizarre situation, and the food wasn't that good. Uh, but the service was great. So um, I always find myself negotiating, and, and, of course, there's a thing in L.A., and I don't know if it's every town, but people don't host their parties very well. They just invite 100 or 200 people, and then nobody introduces anybody so you're skulking like in a corner and I don't think that's classy or pleasant or anything good so if anybody wants to throw better parties if they're rich poor fancy whatever that would be a delight you're listening to Nicole Holof Center, Sandra Singlo, and Megan Dom in a talk recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square lecture series this is Zocalo Make sure you're with us in the coming weeks as Zocalo Radio brings to the air National Book Award winner Nathaniel Philbrick, Academy Award-winning sound designer Richard King, Watergate star witness John Dean, archivist Maggie Rivas-Rodriguez, and sculptor Lita Albuquerque. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, we'll return to Rich Friends, Poor Us, Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression? Stay tuned to Zocalo. Support for KPCC 89.3 is provided by the L.A. Opera, presenting Verde's epic opera Don Carlo. Don Carlo is set during the Spanish Inquisition. Spain and France are at war. The king and his son are in love with the same woman. This is a story of politics and passion that no other art form can bring alive like grand opera. L.A. Opera's Don Carlo stars Salvatore Vicitra and Dolores Jaggi, conducted by music director James Conlon, through October 1st only. Tickets available today at 888-OPERA-LA. 
Next time on Day to Day. The personal lessons of September 11th, 2001. It's brought to light for me that the world is a different place. I had to draw on some of the resolve and calmness from the 9-11 experience. It gives you a different way of looking at life's situations. It was one of many events which shaped who I am. How 9-11 touches America five years later. Next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to Megan Dom, Nicole Holof Center, and Sandra Singh Lowe discussing Rich Friends for Us. Is status anxiety the newest form of depression? Is the word classy inherently déclassé? Paris Hilton is classy. Yeah, I mean, what is, what is classy? I mean, it's sort of... That's really classy. Right? Can I jump in from an angle on the class thing? Okay. I did a show called Mother on Fire about education, about me plummeting through the circles of hell that is Los Angeles schooling to find a kindergarten for my daughter. And I did. But along the way, I looked at a fair number of private schools. We ended up in public school in Van Nuys. And I felt that a lot of these schools were connoting class um, to such a high degree that I thought, you know, at some point I'm going to just start my own private school in my little bungalow in Van Nuys. You could start them anywhere, because some of the ones I looked at were literally in a wooden shack, but if they call it the little bungalow, (laughs) um, it's very small, it's very innovative, it's very creative. So every word I say, you should hear the cash register going up $3,000 every time I say a word. Honoring diversity, peaceful conflict resolution, you know, global citizenship, eco-friendliness. To me, this all connotes what we used to think of as class or the people, the more words are used in a setting like this or organic or, you know, free range or something, these will connote well, kind of the, a place of higher income. The restoration hardware catalog exactly. or the, the authenticity. I think it's taste issues. I mean, I always get in trouble for saying this. It's a really slippery slope, but I wonder if what we're really talking about are issues of taste rather than cash. I mean, we're certainly not talking about cash. My first job ever, I worked at a fashion magazine, and the first thing I learned was that you never use the word chic. Like, if you use the word chic, you so clearly are not. You know, that's a pro word. And I wonder if the word classy has taken on that as well. Is that yeah. something? Well, there's a lingerie store in New York. It's called A Classy Lady. And so it's like, that's so not classy. It's so embarrassing to use the word classy like that. It's like kind of like the kind of classy where you go on a date and they bring you one red rose because they think that's classy. So that's the opposite of classy. So in a way, I mean, it's sweet, but it's It's also Luke's L-U-X-E. Any words like those are Mm -hmm. like in the glitter on Mm -hmm. a t-shirt words. They're all bad words now. Yes. There was actually... um, an Oprah episode that I TV'd a few months ago and just watched it as for I was, research. I was well, it was because I watched it today as I was leaving for this, and it was actually the best Oprah I'd ever seen, and it was about class. And Robert Reich was on. That's how classy the segment was. And she called him Bob. Um, and uh, it was interesting because they would go out on the street and they would oh, do, take right. surveys of people and they would ask people, what is classy? If you look at somebody, how do you determine their social class? And nine times out of ten, the people would say, if they wear a big diamond ring, I think they're of a high class. If they drive a BMW, they have the Gucci sunglasses or whatever it is. And, you know, it occurs to me that we're so, you know, Stupid. we're so stra- Stratified in terms of our, well, yeah. 
I mean, entre nous, we know this is like gag me with a spoon. But I mean, in the world, I mean, we don't live on the stage and we live in the country and we're artists and writers and people who are communicating with the world. And I wonder, in your own work, are you aware of um, perhaps that some people just maybe won't get what you're saying because they're using an entirely different lexicon? I mean, you can say yes or no. <laughs> no. Well, get what I'm saying, like, through my work? Or I just, if, are a lot of people maybe, I don't want to say tone deaf, but are they just not seeing the sort of, you know, social Are you talking about a red state, blue state thing? No, I'm actually, about I'm that actually big middle? not. Not the big I, I middle? Think, no, because I, I have yawning. to say, I, I, again, moratorium on the subject, but I, I did live in a red state for, know, for quite Nebraska. a while. And, yeah. It seems like when we talk about it, the way that class is defined is itself so class-based. And is it even possible to have a discussion about it? You know, maybe not. You will see. Yes, okay, I'll jump in. I'll jump okay. in. Okay. My theory is that there is a media class living on the coasts, and they make a lot of decisions for themselves, and they're all self-protected class. And whatever stuff they hurl out for the proles out there, like I also used to write for Cosmopolitan magazine until I quit because I was going to slit my wrists. But where I remember we'd go in L.A. with these horrible assignments where um, I think pretty women had just come out. So I was supposed to find some professional mistresses in L.A., like Julia Roberts and Pretty Women. Doesn't that sound like an upbeat story? So I was driving, and I could only find not Heidi Fleiss, but her best friend. And they were all 29 going on 40. And we went to, like, Trader Vic's, and they had these big blue drinks, and they were kind of belching and tired in the middle because they were so tired from partying. So I turned in, of course, the article, and it was way too realistic about women who were servicing 80-year-old men in exchange for, like, 200 sunglasses from Oliver Peoples and it sounded, that's really depressing. So the editor was like going, no, 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 we want the hairdresser in Ohio to read your story and get really excited about moving to L.A. I mean, and, and she herself was a whole New York Condé Nast, like the Condé Nasty women, so that the women, the whole Condé Nast empire, the women who live in the, the Upper West Side and in private schools who know that they're churning out this thing for the hairdressers in Ohio and I thought they know that it's not a classy thing, but they hope it'll move magazines. I'm sorry, that's not right on your subject, but... No, it is. It's absolutely yeah. okay. because, I mean, in Phew. the same way, I was thinking of the single red rose. I mean, we saw that on, on The Bachelor. I mean, this is sort of the definition of, you know, what is suave and what is sophisticated and what is aspirational that is sold en masse. So, in a way, we're sort of marginal figures. I mean, not in just that way, but, I mean, speaking well, for myself. Just go ahead. What people will spend on things... I I mean, the fact that teenagers will spend $250 on a pair of jeans, to me, is embarrassing. I would be embarrassed to wear. If somebody gave them to me for free, I wouldn't wear them because I wouldn't want anybody to think I was that shallow and ridiculous and classless. And yet, obviously, other people feel the opposite. But, and it's almost like you know, so the, the nature of a democracy. I mean, I wrote this down. I mean, de Tocqueville... You know, in the chapter in Democracy in America called Why the Americans Are Often So Restless in the Midst of Their Prosperity, he said, when inequality is the general rule in society, the great inequalities attract no attention. But when everything is more or less equal, the slightest variation is noticed. So, you know, maybe it's something that we all have this idea that it's possible to ascend. But really, the only way to ascend is to sort of buy the trappings of that 
ascension. You know, I always say no matter, even if I got really rich one day, it's never going to be old money. So what does it matter? I think that the sort of sense, the way that new money and sort of bling and all this stuff, the way it functions is just is a effect of the democratic process in a way. And so we may just be damned and no, our snobbishness. And there's such gradations of it. Like when I was making Friends with Money and I had described to the production designer what I wanted for Francis McDormand and Simon McBurney's character. And if nobody had seen the movie, I'm sorry if I'm boring you, but they're wealthy and they have a mid-century modern house and they shop on Beverly for their mid-century modern furniture. But it's better than design within reach. It's, you know, the real stuff, Herman Miller and the real, you know, that Paul McCobb. And, and when I went into the set, I didn't recognize any of the real stuff because I'm designed within reach. <laughs> so I said to her, I was like, oh, this looks really dumpy and the wood is old and scratched. And, and she looked at me like, I thought you had class, you know. No, she was, I mean, she just, she was right. You know, she understood the, the subtleties. But probably even better is something that is hand carried from Tibet, that right. they got for free, right. that they picked up. And I think those tchotchkes right. that have been brought back mm-hmm. and have some story that... Exactly, they went on these travels. and yes. I think that's a really key point, the idea of getting it for free. I just happened to know this was a gift. And, you know, the idea... The shaman gave it to me. Yeah, and I always... <laughs> for free. <laughs> and I always, you know, a big difference in my mind between New York and L.A. and the way these things manifest. I always had the sense when I was living in New York that your lifestyle was largely inherited. I mean, you inherited your apartment. Where you went to college is so important, and a lot of that has to do with where your parents went to college. And I think that New York isn't really reflective of the larger sort of American experience in the way that Los Angeles is, where you kind of just can go buy it if you can afford it. If you can make the money, you can go buy it. And it maybe that sort of blurs the lines between what is classy and what is just new bling. You're listening to Megan Dom, Nicole Holof Center, and Sandra Singh Lowe in a talk recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo. On Tuesday, September 19th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents Will Mexico Survive Its Presidential Election? A talk by noted Mexican political scientist and columnist Denise Dresser. Dresser will discuss presidential candidate Andres Manuel López Obrador's challenge to the outcome of Mexico's recent election and the credibility gap that President-elect Felipe Calderón will inevitably face. This event at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve seats and to download past radio programs. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Rich Friends for Us. Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression? With Megan Dom, Nicole Holop Center, and Sandra Singh Lowe. I wonder, since we're women, and there are some women here, if the topic of women and class is another one that I have been a little bit obsessed with, and I always thought in the olden days, in the Jane Austen days, just marry Mr. Darcy. He's the handsomest guy. He has Pemberley, the biggest place. He makes, you know, 10000 a year and that sort of thing. But nowadays, it's interesting, I think when you're talking about inheriting money, now it wouldn't be enough, like, although Tory Spelling is having a very interesting career at this point, but it's not enough to have inherited your money. You have to do something else. And it's also not enough, because when you're talking about old money, 
money. I was going to say, well, Megan, you can marry old money. But even that won't quite, you can't just marry someone and then fade away. It's a really complicated thing women have to negotiate. And then you have to either start your own charity or write a book or start a line of hand creams or something. So it's how women negotiate this is also Jewelry designer. Yeah, jewelry, jewelry design. design. I had a friend who was a jewelry designer, and she was putting together little crystals at night in her room, you know, getting high. And But then she realized she could never make it work because she couldn't buy the diamonds to sell because she couldn't afford the diamonds. So it's only the rich people who can afford to be jewelry designers. And if I'm wrong, you can call me up and tell me I'm wrong. But that's what I imagine. It's uh, only the rich who can run for Democratic offices now in California. That's a gloomy talk. Let's not go. This is too much of a downer. Let's get back to women. Yeah, women. Exactly. Uh, I mean, do you think women are are more sort of fascinated by this topic because they're they're more vulnerable to it? I mean, you know, there's I, well, a long so, and history they, of, and of mar- you know trying to to marry into your lifestyle. Yeah, and I think well, I mean, class is really your sphere of influence, your relationships, your social relationships, and I think you know I always think of the moms you know in a PTA at school, and that's not really a class thing, but just negotiate it. Like women are more used to biologically whatever reason, you know, just seeing these relationships and being really sensitive. To to them and what you give and what you take. So I think that women are just kind of a little bit more open to that, I believe, I think. But but it's still, um, I, I think it's changing, but it's still taboo for a woman to marry down, less so than for a man to marry down. I mean, I think it's changing, but... The idea that m- more women go to college than men now, I mean, and you have, you know, if you just look at the numbers, I don't think college means the same thing it, it used to mean. I mean, so many people go to college now. I was just interviewing someone the other day who believes, you know, college is the new high school. So, you know, the fact that, you, you know, and I like to spin all sorts of theories like, well, you know, that more women go to college than men, so there aren't enough college-educated men for these women to marry, so then they're going to have to date down, and we're going to have to, like, recalibrate our thinking in terms of what, what's appropriate. But do you have thoughts on that? Like, what, does college really, does really, does that really even mean anything? And, you know, certainly when I grew up, where you went to college, that was my ticket out. Like, I was going to get into this X class that I couldn't afford and was well, not going to pay I- me any money by going to a certain college. I think that it's true that women obviously can't have it both ways. You cannot, like, marry a doctor who makes a lot more money than you do if he does and then expect him to do half the housework. It's probably – that has not panned out for a whole generation of women. I mean, you can try it, but it seems not to pan out. And also, we talk about Arlie Russell Hochschild, who wrote The Second Shift and some other ones, where it's kind of like, you know, the great – post-feminist revolution of the 60s was supposed to be women going into the workplace to feminize and humanize it, and then the men could return home and kind of like blossom into their nourishing selves. So now instead, with the capitalization of feminism, men used to work 40 hours a week, now they work 60 hours a week, and the women work 70 hours a week because they get to make partner in the law firm as well. So everybody is working like a million hours a week and no one is at home. So, so I think that is really a complicated thing to look at, that if you really want someone to share that Housework, then you can't marry that alpha male, probably. I'm going to take myself out of this because it's a topic I know nothing about, but l- let's talk about parenthood for a second or, or for, for five minutes. What, um, you know, I mean, I, I think it seems like the whole motherhood and parenthood has been ramped up to a point where that is its own job, and if anything is going to sort of put on display our own class trappings and aspirations, it's the way you raise your kids and what activities they're in and, and what they wear. What they wear, yeah. And, yeah. and so, so how does that make you feel? Bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
It's interesting. I don't know. We're a judgmental bunch, mothers, I think. You know, and if, and if a mother, you know, parks her kid in front of a TV for too long, you know, I, I, there's kind of a class. There's a feel about that, about class. You know what I mean? Now I think how we raise our kids and whether we choose to put them in private school or public school, and if we choose to spend a lot of money on their clothes or Old Navy is just great, or how many after-school things do we shove them into – I think all that is expresses now the way we are, maybe more than my car. Do you know what I mean? Those kind of things are how we judge each other. And I guess you can make an argument that that is a backlash to feminism, and it's just you know saying to women, "Well, you want to work, your motherhood job is going to be." I guess you know, I sort of hesitate to start because I've, I've been so in the middle of it, a little bit of a controversy in the Atlantic Monthly, where I've been called like the devil incarnate by. Dee Dee, what is her name? Myers, a former White House spokesperson. Uh, so apparently I'm the evil one in Van Nuys. My theory is that people have become, for instance, in L.A., I'm not joking when I say the middle class is shrinking, so you have like the affluent and the poor on public transportation where I live. And so I think in and in that top bubble is the media class, the media and so in that media class are, for instance, these mommy wars we're always talking about, the stay-at-homes versus the working moms, who are battling back and forth about really tiny and minute details. Like if somebody, you know, learns French by a native speaker at third grade or does this and that, and you want to go, what about children who don't have shoes? Shoes, you know, as opposed to French in second grade and, and all that sort of thing. So um, I think that, you know, a lot of this anxiety has to do, I call it afflu-femza, the problems of affluence recast as the universal problems of feminism. Uh, and people, that's not a popular term. So I can see the fangs, the fangs, afflu-femza. But I think that, that really if you're in your bubble and, and things are the, that you start to worry about these little things, in fact, if people came out of their shell and looked at what people actually really need in society, Maybe we could take the pressure off moms to be anything. I really think mothers can mother any way they wish as long as they're happy, as long as they're not complaining that like a universal – if we only had universal preschool, which that mother would never send her kid to because she had a baby nurse from age one. You know, I mean it's kind of like as long as you don't blame something outside there for your own choices, make those choices, stand by them, and then help others and and – that's what I think. But wouldn't you say it, I mean, if anything, that more than anything comes from a real palpable anxiety that your child is going to fall out of his right. or her class. I mean, what can... No, no, totally the anxiety it, it may be a legitimate yeah. fear, but yeah. it may be a legitimate fear. Well, I, I, mean, I think it's because people in, in L.A. are so, like, in their bubbles that it's kind of like, well, maybe if my child didn't go to this school and that, they might have to not be a media consultant specialist, but, like, drive a bus or do some hourly job or do the firefighting or the sanitation worker job what would that be like they might have to take a bus oh my god i can't read a bus schedule ah so that people have lost their their street chops of kind of like rioting a public bus i mean that's so terrifying oh my god you could be on a bus and and you know people ride the bus every day they do no my dad although he hijacked yes yeah so so i think it is terrifying because people are very in their bubbles yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the, the you know the New York Times did a big series on on class matters. I guess it was last year, and you know according to their poll, eighty percent of people believe that they really can go from rags to riches, and thirty two percent of people say they're living the American dream, and thirty eight percent of people say they will reach the American dream. I mean, it's not that rosy, really. <laughs> I mean, what do you? Is it because they're not like sending their kids to you know, baby French. (laughs) 
Well, well, uh, now at Harvard, you know, the studies are really interesting now that I, I believe it's something like 75% of the students at Harvard have come from families of $100,000 a year or more. And now, and there's a great book, The Trouble with Diversity, that will be a really interesting book that would be, be published. It's kind of like where there are more black students in college than there are poor students. Think about that one. Yeah, it's very confusing. That the, the poor, the class that really doesn't go to college is really the poor at this point. So that's, but you'll have, you know, and so I think that there really is, that. that's really a fear that if you're not middle class or above, you will not get the same education as others and you will not, those doors won't open for you. And that's terrifying. I think it's really and true it's now. true. You're listening to Megan Dom, Nicole Holup Center, and Sandra Singh Lowe in a talk recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo. Tune in and click on Zocalo Radio next week as we present theater on a grand scale. Don't miss Heather Woodbury, Susan Laurie Parks, and Karen Desai. For information on future events and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In just a moment, the Zocalo audience gets its turn. Stay tuned. Now there's another way for you to support public radio programming on KPCC. You can donate your used vehicle to 89.3 by calling 877-KPCC-CAR, and we'll handle the rest. A representative will explain all of the details. Most important, you'll be supporting the quality programming you expect from 89.3 KPCC. Call today, 877-KPCC-CAR. Something a little like a Middle Eastern bazaar spreads across this vast floor outside Chicago, Illinois. You can buy clothes. You can buy women's headscarves. You can buy computers. Get financial advice in accordance with Islamic law. Even read books about the controversy over suicide bombing. I'm Steve Inskeep. This is one of the places we'll visit as we begin a look at Islam in America five years after 9-11. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. 89.3 KPCC reaches a large, active, intelligent audience. To learn how your organization or business can reach that audience, call 213-621-3592. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., we return now to Megan Dom, Nicole Holof Center, and Sandra Singh Lowe in a talk titled Rich Friends, Poor Us, Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression? In this final segment, the Zocalo audience gets its turn to ask questions. So I'd love to hear from y'all, where to from here? If, you know, 20 years ago and even longer, it would class as a difficult topic where people kind of cringe. You know, what do you imagine and how do we get past that? Should we? Can I answer? Just leap in here. Well, from my point of view, because I can speak from the new mother, one of my, a new, newish mother, one of my things is public school, making public schools better, staying in them. And thank you for that, um, because, you know, and I know that we were priced out. We couldn't move to La Cunana, et cetera. We stayed in Van Nuys. And so I realized I could just stay there and make it because they're, they're middle class people. They're all moving to Portland, 
all of them. The last one went with a Carrie Edwards sticker on the back of the Volvo. <laughs> Goodbye. He just told me. He was like, and I go, you're kidding. Everyone's going to Portland. He goes, I had no idea anyone was going. Um, so that if there's, you know, and, and I think for English speakers in the city to send their kids to school, you know, that their grade schools in there, you just have to find them. So I think that is for me. That is my action that I'm doing. And that afterwards, I brought my scandalously informal guide to the Los Angeles Unified School District for free. My own Thomas Paine-type leaflet there back there. I'll give you one for free. Um, just so that people can know what it is. So if they are, for instance, a middle-class person really struggling, short of fleeing and going to – don't go to Portland. Stay here, and we will work together. And if we could, for, like, work together to make it better, I donate money to schools everywhere around me. I volunteer, and it really doesn't take much to make them um, livable and financial. Some already are. So that's my thing that I do, and other people. And I also just think, you know, on a more abstract level, we need to admit our biases. We need to own up to our own snobberies. I mean, in a weird way, it may be political correctness that's keeping us from being able to have any kind of discussion about class. I mean, you know, we've, we're able, you know, I find it interesting the way social circles can form that have people of different races and genders and, you know, ethnic backgrounds and all this, but it's, it's almost always a very similar socioeconomic class. And to even say that out loud, you know, he's like, well, I have friends, you know, of different races, but do you have a friend who's a bus driver? No, but that doesn't mean that you need to go get one as a pet, but it would be a start to say, uh, no, 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 but, would be a start but to say, say, no, I don't. But, but I, I say, and like, I am a Democrat, but I'm a little bit of a gloomy Democrat. And I think that, you know, for Democrats who are very affluent and don't like, Gore Vidal, sorry, I'm just going to get trashed. I'm going to get thrown out of the city. But I think that particularly if you are a Democrat, you know, it's like we need to make sure that we know what's going on with the bus drivers. But I think it's really important to understand and know how people live. Just one other quick thing that sometimes people will go, why don't the poor buy more fresh organic vegetables? And it's like... (laughs) Have you ever been to South LA? How, you know, how many fast food restaurants were there? How many grocery stores were there? If you ride the bus and are carrying groceries, would you carry a watermelon? Or, ch- you know, it's like there, people well, have lost touch. Nobody can afford with, them either. Nobody well, can afford organic right. vegetables. Right. Well, there's, there's that. Um, but, but yes, to just to know how people live is really important. Yeah, I just think be, being aware so of... So we can win the next election. But being aware of the way we're being manipulated by, you know, sort of media messages that come from, you know, supposed lefty PC organic you know, we're all in this together. There's nothing more provincial than that sort of arena. And, you know, just kind of kind of think about it a little. I don't have a leaflet, but that's – I don't have a pamphlet. Yeah, that's okay. Thank you. Yes, I was wondering um, – and, and this may be out of some of your areas of expertise – but in terms of class and how it applies, say, to, to minorities or other sort of races, this is more – in spite of Ms. Lowe's uh, race – more focus on um, the white perspective, at least my, my sense, uh, or middle, upper middle class perspective. Um, one of the things that, that I noticed in my experience is that some of the classiest people I've ever met are African American, and I was hoping that you could um, speak to that. I'll jump, because I'm, I'm a little brown, so I can jump in there with a little, you know. Uh, but, uh, so there you go. I, now, I think class is really interesting with the different ethnicities, and then we're really going to go there where people don't want to go. But I think that is true. I certainly know, um, for instance, you know, 
in, in my neighborhood, we have Asian Americans, Latino, this, that. And I think maybe I can speak for a moment about Asian Americans because those are my people and I can diss them if need be. I mean, I think there's this terrifying new group coming up. It's like the really academically competitive Asian Americans. And like in Northern California, where you have a phenomenon of white people actually moving out of the Silicon Valley town because they don't want their kids go, to go to school with Asian American kids who are s- studying too many hours, scoring too high. They're grimly not participating in anything fun. And so they're like, it's like white flight from schools that are too high performing because of the Asians. But I think it's an interesting, it's, it's kind of an interesting and weird uh, phenomenon. That, and I know many of those Asian parents and I go, Asian Americans, just, just let up, you know. Americans, this is where we invented the party. So, you know, come to our nationality. But I think that you can see in different social groups. And I think, for instance, another thing I, I can bring up is that I know that there's, a, there's another school that I shan't mention, but it is in a kind of an expensive part in the Beverly Hills area. And it's like whites and Persians. And at this particular school, they were saying, so when we do our gift-raising fundraiser at the beginning of the year, uh, the Persian families, we ask everyone for 500 bucks. The white families give. The Persian families say, you know, we pay property taxes. That's enough. They won't give a dime. And they won't buy our gift wrap. But if we throw a spelling bee... Oh, the wallet's open, you know, from like from the Iranian families. So it's kind of like, so there are people that are negotiating this stuff all the time in Los Angeles, and it's terrifying to discuss. I mean, I don't know if that's so much a class, but but people are negotiating all these ethnic differences across the board um, all all the time, and we just need more people to write about it because it's kind of interesting but very tricky. I'm interested in a phenomenon you haven't talked about very much, and that is the culture of consumption and its relationship to class and class aspiration, particularly evident in Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'm interested in this idea of the, the democratization of design. I'm not really sure if that's what you're getting at, but, I mean, we do have this this phenomenon now where a lot of stuff is not too expensive and you can go Target, in and, your favorite yeah, store. Right. And you can go in and, you know, be a relatively low income person and outfit your, your apartment. So it looks like something from, from trading spaces on some reality show. And so I think it kind of makes the waters a little bit murky in terms of, you know, our own self perceptions like, well, you know, maybe I am doing okay because I have this Michael Graves toaster but in fact, it's a way of it's a way of of maybe not owning up to the amount of debt we're in, and I think that that just sort of snowballs. I mean, maybe what you're getting at is the way we're just constantly looking at what everybody has and judging ourselves based on that, and forgetting the fact that probably 80% of that stuff was bought on credit, and we're looking at a debt. We're not looking at net worth. Question about. Manners Are manners synonymous with class? Because the gentleman up there mentioned uh, African-Americans. And he, I don't think we've had a definition yet, a clear definition of what classy is. And does it have something to do with somebody has good manners? Well, 
In Los Angeles, that's really interesting. And I was just thinking about this the other week, that there would be a certain, like, like hostessing at a party or getting an invitation on some beautiful paper or that sort of thing. And, and very few do that in L.A. And I also know in the Hollywood thing, and Nicole can probably speak more to this, it's really confusing when you go to your first TV or movie meeting where, like, the executive is dressed like, not like worse than you, but it's kind of like it's really important never to wear a jacket at those meetings because creative people just wear, like, little T-shirts and, and flip-flops, and it's very important to speak immediately. And you can, again, speak more to this from your own experience and feel – I mean, and I think the creative class, whatever that means, more dominates – well, in L.A., in parts that I go through, you know, for better or worse, that means people are dressed down. They speak about their feeling. There aren't hierarchies. So it's kind of a – that's what well, I see almost, in L.A. I mean, kind of Nicole, have, have you found – it's almost the idea, especially you know, in Hollywood, that if you're too dressed up, you're like some corporate stooge. And so you're not a real artist or you're not a creative person. So Yeah, you know. yeah well, I, I feel like I'm entitled – like I should actually look sloppier because that means I've been up. Uh, drinking scotch and smoking cigarettes and writing really deep yeah, you're thoughts. you're a serious artist. Right. Yeah. And if I and I have a friend actually who's a writer and I'm always trying to, to stop dressing up to go to meetings because I feel like she's also trying to be people pleasing if she's dressing up to a meeting and so there's there's that. I mean it has less to do about class than about probably actually being female and wanting to be a people pleaser and to look pleasant and sexy but not too sexy and um, but I do feel like I shouldn't uh, dress up. <laughs> but I do think that also trickles down just in terms of the way people behave. But you're talking about dress, and I don't think dress precludes good manners. Yeah, that, that's I what mean, I was going to say. Right. I, I, I mean, don't... introducing somebody to another person and saying, you have this in common, you should... But there's you know, a casualness alluded, that comes to that. When you alluded yeah. to the fact that you went to a party at a McMansion and, and the host didn't even bother to introduce people, I, I think that's ill-mannered. Anyway, I don't think... Thank you. I agree. But, but there's I something think, about think, the word manners that I think a lot of people that would strike them as like, oh, well, you know, that's for, that's for people, you know, aravist, you know, that's for people who are trying too hard. I mean, I think there's, right. we're very conscious of the fact that you don't want to look like you're trying too hard. And that has, that and also, falls up the other side. And manners are so generational too. I, I right, agree. but then there's our parents' manners, and then their parents' manners, and then my manners, and they change, I think, through generations. You know, being a new parent, I just want to mention the bugaboo stroller. I mean, it all starts with the hospital and the stroller, as far as I'm concerned. Have you seen all the bugaboo strollers that are yes. bought on credit cards all over the city because somebody in InStyle magazine decided that the bugaboo stroller was the stroller? And I think that part of the city is being ruled by those magazines, and it starts so young. And I've grown up in the city, and I've moved from west to east, and I still travel back and forth. And I could, I could go on and on, but I mean, it really. So you're an east side mom. I'm now. an east side mom with a west side feeling you know that sounds like a country <laughs> song to me <laughs> do you guys we have only a few seconds left do you guys have any any we can work together to fix everything I, I oh okay I was gonna say something more negative I mean I think the, the amount I want to end on a negative note we can't work together um <laughs> People no, I, disunite. Yeah. I think consumerism is getting worse, and, and the amount of um, consumption that teenagers and kids... I live in fear that my children are going to become horrible people, you know, because of all the magazines and all the stuff and more access and more stuff and stuff and stuff, and um, and I really am trying to figure out ways to, f to fight against it. Move out of Just L.A. Up there. Uh, Thank you, Sandra Singlow, Nicole Holof Center. Thank Thanks you. for coming.
You've been listening to filmmaker Nicole Holofcener, author, performer Sandra Singlo, and L.A. Times columnist Megan Dom in a talk recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Special thanks to the California Endowment. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The producer for Zocalo is Peter Stenzel. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening.